I invite you to join hands with those around you right now for a word of prayer. And uh, if you haven't gotten their name yet, maybe you can just exchange names real quick so you know who you're standing next to there. It's great to see you today. And uh, once you've done that, would you just bow your heads with me in prayer? And as you do that, would you just whisper his name, this one we've been worshiping and singing about this morning, Jesus. Let's whisper his name, Jesus. Savior, blessed Redeemer, glorious Lord. In Hebrew, it was Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And Lord Jesus, it is you we come to this morning. It is you we worship and sing about. It's your name that brings light to our eyes and a smile to our faces. You are truly the most significant person in all of human history. We divide our calendars by your life and death. And yet, Lord, sometimes I wonder if I really know you. Sometimes I wonder if we really know you. Lord, my prayer is that you'd show us a little bit more of your glory today. Give us a glimpse of your glory. We might know you for who you really are, full of grace and truth. Call us to a deeper level of devotion today. Call us to follow you with more intensity and more fervency because you are worth it, Jesus. We praise you for your sacrifice for us. And uh, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in this big family of God that we get to be a part of. And we love you now. Speak to our hearts. Touch us. I pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. And you can have a seat. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. I think we've got a few of our college students uh, home on a short break here for the fall. It's good to see you guys. And, uh, well, blessings to those of you who served in our SurfFest event yesterday. It was a citywide SurfFest, lots of churches involved, and I uh, hope you got a chance to get out and serve some folks. God gave us a beautiful day, and our family received arguably the, the best task of all. We had free gas cards to give away down at the Speedway station, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't get much better than that, to watch people go from suspicion to... Extreme gratefulness, <laughs> you know, it's just the coolest thing. And uh, more than one person said, you know, what's the catch? You know, what do you want? And it's like, you know, unconditional acts of love and kindness are hard to refuse, hard to resist. And uh, so we just believe and pray that God worked through all of us to bless our community and uh, spread some of his love. Amen? It's a good, it was a good time. Well, have you gotten to see that fireproof movie yet? Have you got to see it? Raise your hands if you have, okay? If you haven't, I really encourage you to get out and uh, watch this movie, just if for no other reason that it, we need to support, you know, family-oriented, wholesome movies like this that come out so we can send a message to movie makers that there is a market for movies like these. And uh, great, great movie. I know when we walked out of it, the first question we asked was, where can we get a copy of that book? that's promoted in the movie. It's called The Love Dare, and uh, we want to let you know that we are carrying that book in our bookstore, so if you haven't gotten a chance to pick up a copy of that yet, then uh, 
feel free to do so, okay? You can pick that up today. We're sold out. So scratch that. (laughs) We'll be getting more, okay? (laughs) Well, we have been talking the last several weeks about relationships and marriage and things of that nature. And I got to thinking this week, though, that probably the best thing that any of us can do for the health and strength of our marriages is pursue God together, to just get intentional and serious about pursuing our Creator together, whether you're married or single. And um, that's what we're launching into beginning this weekend, a series titled Jesus. And uh, we're going to set out in hot pursuit of the Son of God. Does that sound okay with you guys? We talk a lot around here about transformation and how God wants to change our lives and Our part in that is pursuing God and connecting with a team and serving others together, but we're going to just zero in on pursuing God and particularly His precious Son, Jesus Christ, these next few weeks. So the title of our message today is called Rare Combinations, and I want you to think about that for a minute. I'm wondering if you've ever met or heard about someone who stood out from the crowd because they possessed a rare combination of qualities or traits. You know, a person who possesses two seemingly opposite qualities that you don't typically find in a single individual. In baseball, it's power and speed, right? Rare is the player who can hit 40 home runs, have that kind of power, and steal 40 bases in a single season. That's a rare combination in baseball. In football, it's size and quickness, right? That player who is monstrously huge but also quick as lightning. I mean, you just don't find it that often. That's a a rare combination in a football player. In dating, ladies, it's a guy who has both strong Christian character and truckloads of money. (laughs) It's just rare. You just, you know, you get one or the other, but uh, rare is when you find that all in one package. Well, I'm convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was a person of rare combinations. These next several weeks, we're going to get to know the real Jesus better. Not Bill Maher's version of Jesus, but the real Jesus. And as we do, I believe we're all going to marvel at the rare combinations that this single individual, this one man, possessed. You see, I don't know if you've learned this yet, but you can't put Jesus in a box. No single category can contain him or explain him. As I like to say, he's more than we thought and all that we need. He's Jesus. So as we begin this journey together, you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder, follow along with us. I want you to think about the rare combinations that we find in the Jesus who is described in the pages of Scripture. And the first rare combination I want to talk about is grace and truth. The Bible says this in John 1, law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In another place it says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see it? Not grace or truth, grace and truth. And I'll tell you what, that's something you don't see every day in one person. It's rare to find one person who could be described by both of these words, grace and truth. I mean, I know grace people, and I know truth people. 
But to find someone who is graciously truthful or truthfully gracious is a rare thing indeed. This verse tells us that Jesus was both. He was both. Think about truth for a minute. It says Jesus was full of truth. He loved truth. He lived truth. He spoke truth. If you doubt that, just ask a member of that community of robed, hyper-religious people called the Pharisees. Listen to Jesus' words to them, recorded in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, you tithe on your mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. He's just getting started. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Now he's getting on a roll. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Yikes. You know, sometimes we're afraid to tell people the truth, aren't we? For fear of what they'll think, or for fear of hurting or angering them, or more likely because they might not like us anymore if we tell them the truth. Not Jesus. Jesus was truthful with people no matter what the personal cost. He was always shooting straight with people. To a rich young ruler who came to him asking how to get in on eternal life, Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Yikes. To his beloved disciple Peter, who at one point was kind of losing sight of Jesus' mission, his redemptive mission in the cross, Jesus turned to him and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. To the enthusiastic but fickle crowds who loved his miracles, and especially his free food that he provided, who started following him around everywhere, he turned to them at one point and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He even chastised his own disciples, the twelve, on multiple occasions for their dullness and their doubt and their faithlessness and their self-serving attitude. I'm telling you, Jesus of Nazareth was all about truth. He even said once, I am the truth. But thankfully, he was also full of grace, wasn't he? He was gracious. It's hard to envision both in the same person, but he was. If you doubt that, just see Jesus as he engages a Samaritan woman with a checkered past at the well in Sychar, violating all 
custom and decorum in doing so and surprising his disciples. See him as a desperate plea for help reaches his ears and he stops dead in his tracks, turning aside to a pitiful blind beggar named Bartimaeus, an outcast of society, and heals him. See Jesus as he enrages the religious establishment by attending parties with drunkards and gluttons, the so-called refuse of society. He angers the religious elite to the point where they give him a derogatory title, friend of sinners. Jesus, you friend of sinners, you. See him as he goes around healing and forgiving sins, even turning to a a loose woman caught in the very act of adultery, looking at her and saying, Ma'am, where are your accusers? Where'd they go? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See him hanging on a cross, an innocent man beaten to a pulp for our sins. And even in that moment, turning to a common criminal beside him, looking him square in the eyes, seeing the faith in his heart and saying, today you're going to be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus was full of truth, but he was also full of grace, wasn't he? It seemed like when he encountered self-righteous religious types, he just wailed on them with the truth. But when he encountered people who were sinful people and knew it, he was full of grace. It's a rare combination. Jesus was full of of both of them in perfect blend. Also, think about this. Here's another pair of seemingly opposite qualities that Jesus possessed. Jesus was strong and Jesus was sensitive. He was both. You know, many flannel board caricatures of Jesus portray him as this sickeningly sweet, effeminate sort of guy. But make no mistake, Jesus was a strong man. A very, very strong man. Let's just reflect on his physical strength for a moment. You know, we have a number of construction workers in our church, carpenters and the like. Think about the kind of physique you're likely to encounter on a construction site, not unlike the specimen you see standing before you today. You probably see wide, strong shoulders, muscular arms, rough, calloused hands, vice-like grip, sun-darkened face and back. That's what you see on construction sites. Remember that except for Jesus' final three years, this is what he did. He was a construction worker, a carpenter his whole life. And know also that carpentry back then was a lot different than carpentry is today. In many ways, it was a lot tougher. In those days, Carpenters didn't ride around in air-conditioned pickup trucks with leather seats and CD players. In those days, there weren't forklifts and modern scaffolding and the like. It was a far more labor-intensive industry back then. From what we read in history, carpenters often did their own masonry and stonework most of the time. They often had to go into the forest themselves and cut down the trees that they needed for their woodwork. Had Jesus not been physically strong, he would not have lasted in that industry. It was too physically demanding. He was a very strong man physically. Beyond that, we read in the scriptures that on two separate occasions, Jesus literally threw a bunch of money changers out of the temple courtyard 
because of their financial shenanigans, he upended their tables and drove them out. He literally went on a holy rampage. And the text says that when he confronted those people, it says they fled. Now, he must have been a rather imposing person physically for them to have reacted like that because there was lots of money at stake that they probably weren't just willing to walk away from. Had he not been physically imposing, I think those guys would have said, who's going to make us leave? You and whose army? But they didn't. They fled. Jesus was a strong man. The Bible also tells us how far Jesus would have to walk to get from town to town in those days. There were no motor-powered vehicles, motorcycles, or the like. He walked sometimes 10, 15, 20 miles up and down hills through rugged and uneven terrain. This was under the hot Middle Eastern sun. That takes strength. That takes endurance. And what about near the end of his life when he was savagely beaten and flogged with a whip that had pieces of metal in it and it ripped his back open and then they laid a hundred-pound cross on his back and he had to walk through the entire city of Jerusalem. You know, looking out over us, I don't know that any of us could have done that. I certainly could not have. Make no mistake, Jesus of Nazareth was a very strong man. But his strength was not only physical. He had mental strength as well, mental toughness, mental tenacity. Think about how absolutely clear Jesus was when it came to his mission. Nothing could seduce him or distract him from it. You know, it takes a ton of mental toughness to stay on mission, doesn't it? For an extended season of time. Jesus did that. To resist the easier path, to avoid the side streets of comfort or pleasure. Jesus had that inner strength and he displayed it all through his life, all the way to the end. You remember when the nails were being pounded in his hands and his feet. He was stripped naked and propped up for people to mock and spit at. I think a man of lesser internal mental strength at that point would have probably said, who needs this? And just aborted the whole plan, God's whole redemptive plan for humanity. But he didn't. He hung in there. He was very tough physically and tough as steel mentally. Jesus was also very strong emotionally, I might add. You know this, that among other things, Jesus was a teacher. How many of you are teachers here today? Can I see your hands? We've got a lot of teachers among us. Those of you who teach know how emotionally draining and demanding teaching can be. You can just flat out take it out of you. Especially if you have an important message that you're trying to get across to your listeners. And if you speak to large crowds, you can multiply that emotional stress. And if your message that you're trying to get across is being opposed or resisted, that's immensely draining emotionally for a teacher. If you know your New Testament very well, you know that Jesus' message was met with flat-out defiance from the religious establishment of his day. They asked him trick questions to embarrass him. They lied about what he had taught in earlier sessions. They spread half-truths about him to try and discredit him. Sometimes even his close friends could not bear the challenge level of his teaching, the piercing truthfulness of his teaching. It says sometimes even some of them turned away and walked away from him. 
point I'm making is that all of this takes an unbelievable emotional toll on a teacher. The kind that makes teachers want to just say, forget this, I don't need this. But Jesus never bailed. Not only that, he never modified his message, he never lowered the standards. He never backed down from teaching the truth. The emotional strength it takes to do that is almost incalculable. Jesus was tough physically, tough mentally. He was strong emotionally. Let's talk about moral strength for a minute, moral fortitude. How many of you have ever uh, read a biography of a, a notable historical person like presidents of the United States and you read about them and then you read about what they were like when they were out of the limelight off the stage you ever get a little disappointed sometimes I'm shocked by what I read and and then sometimes you know you read about the lives of noted spiritual leaders who you know get up and talk about God to large crowds and you read about what they do in their private lives I know I've read some some of those things and thought, no way, you've got to be kidding me. They did what? For how long? And they still somehow were able to justify that and get up and talk about God or write about God? That's unbelievable. Jesus was completely different on this point. Jesus of Nazareth mustered the moral strength to overcome every single temptation that came his way. Put another way, Jesus batted a thousand morally. No foul balls, no strikeouts. One time his detractors got foot stomping mad about something that he was saying or doing and they wanted in the worst way to discredit him and Jesus humbly approached them and he said this, well, if any of you can convict me of any sin, I'm willing to hear it. Take a free shot. You know what the text says? Not a single person could find a single thing to charge him with. They stood there in silence. Now, don't you try that at home. It won't turn out quite the same way. I won't either. Because we all have our blemishes, don't we? For a world-class leader or teacher who lived in a high-pressure, visible public life, to have not a single blemish, no smoking guns, no skeletons in the closet. That requires enormous moral fortitude and strength, power that the average person doesn't have, but Jesus had it. So whatever you think of Jesus of Nazareth, whether you view him as the Son of God or not, please don't swallow the images that you see in the movies or on TV of some emaciated, flaky, effeminate character. Jesus of Nazareth was perhaps the strongest person who ever walked the planet, physically, mentally, emotionally, morally. But again, he was strong, but but that picture of him by itself is incomplete. Because not only was Jesus a person of immense strength, but he was also a person of extreme sensitivity. This is amazing to me. These two qualities that seem mutually exclusive were found residing in this one man. The Bible records that the same man with the power to calm the wind and calm the raging seas 
also thoroughly enjoyed it when little kids came up to him and sat on his lap. (laughs) And it bugged his disciples to no end, didn't it? They're like, Jesus, we got places to go and people to see and appointments to keep and sermons to be preached. And here you are messing around with little kids. And Jesus is like, I love little kids. Come on, don't forbid them. Come on, kids. They'd sit on his lap. He'd stroke their hair. He'd listen to them, talk with them, bless them. Where do you find that in a person? This man who wielded the power to heal the sick and make the lame walk and the blind see was the same man that when he traveled through certain towns, he would look at people who were far from God and he'd weep over them. He would weep over their self-destructive lifestyles and, and he would mutter to himself things like, you know, man, they're just they're aimless and wandering like sheep without a shepherd. It says he wept over Jerusalem. If you're ever in a jam and you have to memorize a Bible verse quickly, choose John eleven thirty five. Two words. What are they? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This strong, strong man came to the graveside of a friend who had recently passed away, and he looked around and he saw people grieving and weeping, and it touched his heart, and it says he wept. See the tears streaming down his cheeks as he beheld human suffering. Something about human pain and suffering touched the heart of Jesus Christ. Sensitive to that. Even though his public teaching sessions often attracted thousands of people, Jesus would very often sneak off to the side to meet one-on-one with some broken person or some grieving person or a confused or troubled or forgotten person. And again, it would frustrate his entourage to no end. These people were traveling with him. Why, they would say, exasperated. Why indeed? Jesus' radar for locating suffering people was so finely tuned Jesus almost never made it from point A to point B in his ministry without turning aside to spend time with some person whose life was in shambles, whose life was a mess. He was touched. His sensitivity was of another kind. A kind the world had never seen before, a kind that many of his contemporaries and peers could not understand, a kind that this world has never seen since. Jesus was one of a kind when it came to strength, when it came to sensitivity. He wasn't either or, he was both and, and it boggles the mind, doesn't it? Well, let me just briefly mention one more rare combination that we see in Jesus of Nazareth. How about this one? Complexity and simplicity. I think he was both. Most of us probably view Jesus as living a simple life, a simple lifestyle, and certainly he did. Despite his enormous following, Jesus chose a simple lifestyle that enabled him to stay accessible to the common folk, people like you and me. He walked the same dusty roads that everybody else walked. No designer chariot, no limo. He ate the same common foods that everybody else ate. He often stayed in the homes of friends to keep his Ministry expenses low. He kept his schedule flexible. He 
He had an open-door policy so that normal folks could come and talk to him almost any time. And when he died, there was no huge portfolio requiring trustees and lawyers. Jesus of Nazareth left behind just a single earthly possession, didn't he? A blood-stained robe. And the stains on his robe washed away the sin stains of your life and mine. He lived a simple life. But again, let's not mistake Jesus' simplicity of lifestyle with being simple-minded or simplistic. Jesus was nothing of the sort. The mental horsepower it took for him to pull off the multi-layered mission that he was on should stagger us. He was no simple-minded man. Sometimes we forget this, but when Jesus was here, let's remember that Jesus managed multiple priorities and steadily advanced a complex and diverse set of objectives in God's redemptive plan. And he executed all of them flawlessly. Just think for a minute about the variety of initiatives that Jesus was accomplishing while he was here. Think about this. First, he was training 12 very different men in a three-year life-on-life discipleship program, wasn't he? his disciples. That would have been a full-time job if that's all he had to do. While he was doing that, he was training three of those men for specific leadership roles in a brand new enterprise that he was planning to launch called the church, body of Christ. On top of that, we know that Jesus was engaged in an important itinerant teaching ministry to thousands and thousands of people who were clamoring for his attention every moment of every day. Beyond that, he also conducted an increasingly popular and very draining healing and deliverance ministry to the infirmed and the demon-possessed who lived in his town and in the surrounding communities. I'm getting tired just thinking about all that Jesus was doing. Not only that, he had an effective ministry of evangelism to sinners and outcasts. He shared the gospel with them and turned them from darkness to light. Not only that, he had a prophetic ministry to the religious establishment of his day, as we've talked about, and exposed their hypocrisy and duplicity and double standards. This is a risky ministry, a very dangerous one. It eventually cost him his life. Add to that the fact that he was living every day as the promised Messiah, fulfilling dozens and dozens of prophecies as the living embodiment of God's 4,000-year-old promise for a coming Messiah. Not only that, Jesus was the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament, wasn't he? Presiding over the transition from Old Covenant, Jewish-centered living to New Covenant, Gentile-inclusive living and promises, all the while advancing God's program for Israel perfectly. And if all that wasn't enough, he did all of this while marching relentlessly towards Jerusalem and Golgotha to become the sinless substitutionary sacrifice for the sin's of the world. Is your mind spinning yet? Talk about multitasking. Jesus did it all, and that's not even everything he did. Listen, no simple-minded, intellectual, lightweight could have carried out all of those various ministries. No way. His was a multi-dimensional mission, and he carried it all out flawlessly. And you know what? He did most of it in just three years boggles my mind. You see, Jesus was both simple 
and complex. Just as he was both strong and sensitive, just as he was full of both grace and truth. He was a man of rare combinations. The man Christ Jesus. You know, many of us have grown up in the church and uh, started out maybe like I did, looking at, you know, one-dimensional cutouts on flannel graphs of Jesus. And we've heard his teachings, some of us for years, some of us for decades, from the time we were very young to last week's sermon. And yet sometimes I wonder, do we know the man? Do we know Jesus Christ? Do we really know him? Many of us are saved, many of us are born again, and that's great, but do we know this man that we claim to follow? Do we know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? I want to conclude the message this morning by asking you to come with me to a sacred place, to holy ground, where we must remove our shoes to stand in his presence, come to that place where the name of Jesus is hallowed. So put your notes aside, if you would. Put your Bibles away for the next couple of minutes. Take a deep breath. And for the next few moments, just listen to the names and descriptions and titles of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, as he is presented to us by the writers of Holy Scripture. And i got to admit, there are some times that I just wish I was an African-American preacher. You know? Our African-American brothers can do it like nobody else. Preach the paint off the wall. So with apologies to E.V. Hill and Tony Evans and others, I want to present to you the Jesus that we find recorded in Holy Scripture. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the second Adam. He is our advocate, altogether lovely, anointed, the Amen, the Ancient of Days. Jesus is called the Apostle, the author of our faith, born of a woman, the balm of Gilead, beloved, begotten, branch, bridegroom, and the bright and morning star. Bishop, cluster of camphor, captain, consolation, he is the chief cornerstone, chosen of God, counselor, covenant, and the mighty Christ. He is day spring, day star, deliverer, desire of all nations, the door, the elect of God, Emmanuel, ensign, and everlasting Father. You guys with me on this? He's the faithful witness, the finisher of our faith, first fruits, the fountain of life, and the friend of sinners. Aren't you glad? Jesus is the gift of God, the glorious Lord. He is God, guide, governor, our help, our health, husband, horn of salvation, head of the church, heir of all things, high priest. He is hell's dread and heaven's wonder and the holy, most holy one of God. Jesus is the great I am. He's our inheritance, the image of God, immortal, invisible, Judah, judge, just, Jesus, and king. He is king of glory, king of Israel, king of kings, king everlasting. He is the life, light, lily of the valley, the lamb, the lion, the living stone, and the Lord of glory. 
He is the Nazarene. He is both the offering and the offerer of sin's sacrifice. He's the offspring of David. He's not only the Alpha, but the Omega, the only begotten of God. He is our Passover, our physician. He is potentate, priest, prince of life, prince of peace, the propitiation for our sins, and the righteousness of God. Jesus was called rabbi, ransom, refiner. He is our rest, rock of ages, the root of David, root of Jesse. He's the sweet rose of Sharon. He is our ruler. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is our savior. He's called the seed of the woman, a servant, a shield, a sinless sacrifice, the son of David, the son of God, son of man, stone, and the sufferer for our sins. He is the tabernacle, teacher. He's the treasure worth selling everything else to possess. He's the, he's the truth, the way, the wisdom of God, the witness, the word, and he is wonderful. Jesus of Nazareth, throughout all ages, all generations, He will and forever will be the lovely and the mighty Christ. As the old hymn says, Sweetest name, O mortal tongue, Sweetest carol ever sung, Jesus. You know, in that day, to those who were even casually interested in him or his message, Jesus would often give them a simple two-word call. You remember it? Follow me. You got some interest in me? Follow me. Let me lead you. Let me be your leader, he was saying. Let me be your leader. Let me be your forgiver. I think he's still giving that call to people today. Follow me. I think Jesus is, through his spirits, talking to people even today, saying, Turn from, your, turn from your sinful lifestyle, turn from your self-absorbed, self-focused lifestyle, repent of your sins, and turn to me in faith. Let me forgive you of your sins. Let me lead your life. I am who I am, he's saying. Follow me. You know what? You can't follow a lot of different people who are going different, different directions. You can study a lot of different people and learn about a lot of different people, but you can only follow one person. And Jesus was unequivocal about his own identity. He said, I am the way. You want to get to God, you got to go through me. I felt prompted in preparing this message that there were some of you in this room today who need to stand and publicly identify yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. Not for me, not really even for anybody else who's here, but for you. You need the accountability that comes by standing in front of four or five hundred people and by standing you're saying, I am declaring myself a follower of Jesus Christ. For some of you it's the first time because you've been checking out Christianity and Christ and Christians and church. I meet people every week who say, I've been coming now for two weeks or four weeks or, or three months and I, I've been checking things out and maybe today's the day you're hearing his call to you and you're ready to respond and stand and say, For the first time, I'm declaring myself to be a follower of Jesus. I'm choosing him. He's going to be my leader now. 
Others of you, it's not the first time, but the fact of the matter is you used to follow Jesus and you veered off the path and now he's calling you back. He's saying, come back, back on my path. I'm full of grace, come back. Some of you are like I was. You're a, you're a closet follower of Jesus. You know, you say, oh, I'm, I'm saved, I'm born again, but no one really knows that. Like the people at school don't really know that or the people at the office or work don't really know that. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus always called people out to stand and, and, and be counted among his followers to declare themselves. And you need to do that today. The Spirit of God's talking to you about taking a stand. And let me tell you, if you can't do it in here amongst several hundred supporters, you'll never do it out there in a hostile world. And so our worship team is going to come back on stage and they're going to start playing and we're going to worship together in a few moments. But I just wanted to give some of you who sense this in your spirit the chance right now to just stand. And here's how I want to do it. If you're a teenager here today, you're in your teens and you believe God's calling you to declare yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ for the first time or maybe coming back to him, and you're, gonna, you're not making promises, okay, about the future. You're just responding to the Spirit right here in the present. Then I ask you to stand if you're a teenager right now. And that's you. Say, I just want to respond. I want to be a follower of Jesus. If you're a 20-something, and the Spirit of God's speaking to your heart, and you need to declare yourself publicly to be his follower, I want you to stand. You need this. You need the accountability that comes from a public declaration. 30-something, 30-somethings. You young 30-somethings. Drive me crazy, you're so young. You know, some of you don't need to do this. You've publicly declared yourself many times, but there's some that God's talking to. 40-somethings. Any 40-somethings feel, I need to stand and declare myself. 50-somethings. Ah, praise God. 60-somethings. No way. You're in your 60s? I would have thought you were 39. (laughs) 70-somethings. 80-somethings. Ninety-somethings, centenarians. The rest of us, what do you think of these guys? You think this is a good thing? Stay standing for a minute. Stay standing for a minute. I don't know in particular what the next step is in your pursuit of Christ after today. I do know that the Spirit of God wanted me to give you this challenge today. I do know that next weekend, Claude Davis will be talking to us about a very important step that Jesus himself took and called all of his followers to take, and that is being baptized. And some of you, if you've never been baptized by immersion in water after you've chosen to follow Jesus, then you need to do that. That's another public declaration. It burns bridges with the old life. And I would challenge you to do that. Maybe for you it's that daily quiet time with God.
pursuing Jesus through that alone, you and, you and Jesus alone, pouring over his word, praying your heart back to him. I want to say a prayer over all of you right now. So let's bow our heads together if we can. Father in heaven, I thank you for these who have stood in our presence today, and I pray that as they do, you would reach down from heaven and touch them, touch their lives, God. It took immense courage to stand here right now and stand up in front of 500 people and say, I want to come out of the closet. I want to be known as a follower of Jesus. Lord, from teenagers all the way to people in their 80s, would you bless them and touch them, God? Give them courage to live for you, not only inside these four walls, but outside them. As they leave and go into their lives and their places of school and work, God, give them your strength. Jesus, that strength that you had in you, would you infuse some of that into each of these folks who are standing right now? Spirit of God, please reveal to each person what their next step is in this holy pursuit of the Son of God. May we be known as a church full of followers, not perfect, or we can't. We can't make promises about, you know, any attempts at perfection in the future, but we want to say yes to you in this moment. You said, my sheep, hear my voice. May we hear your voice crystal clear. Help us to take that next step now. I pray in Jesus' name.